This is Fogland Lighthouse. I'm Jack Dean. One more story about the sea, if you'll indulge me. After all, when you live on an island, the sea is quite hard to get away from. The sea giveth and the sea taketh away. At low tide, the bones of old shipwrecks start poking up above the waves all over the coast of Britain. The English oak of the Sally on Westward Ho Beach. The great hulking steel frame of the MV Captianus lying sideways in the Firth of Clyde like a sleeping drunkard. The eerie fragments of the Admiral von Trump in Saltwick Bay. The shipwreck of this story can't be seen from the land anymore. But the ship itself is not as important as what was inside it. The Isle of Eriskay is bounded by the larger main islands of the Outer Hebrides to its north and south, and by the great wild wastes of the Atlantic to the west. Remote doesn't really cover it. Bonnie Prince Charlie landed there in 1745, and not much has changed since. In the year 1941, where we find it, it had no gas, no electricity. It had only finished getting a road six years earlier. Eriskay, where the food was what they could grow themselves, or trade for wool sheared from the local sheep by weather-beaten men and knitted by hand by patient, intractable women, where they heated their houses with peat cut out of the bogs, where the ponies that towed that peat also carried the kids to school, where the sweet music of Gaelic is the main language spoken. An island like this doesn't really notice the static and noise generated by the governments on the mainland. It is drowned out by the crash of the waves on stony beaches. But sometimes the sea throws you a curveball, and the pace of life goes up a little. This curveball took the shape of the SS politician, a steam-powered cargo ship taking goods for export to the United States. She left harbour from Liverpool in February 1941 and headed north to join a protective convoy that would try and shield it from the prowling wolf packs of German U-boats as it crossed the Atlantic. But before she got there, the foul winter weather destroyed all visibility and she ran aground in plain sight of Eriskay, her pierced hull spilling engine oil into the waters around her. When the crew had all been safely brought ashore, one of them must have got talking about the cargo. There was plenty of the stuff you'd expect. Cotton and sweets and bicycles and cigarettes. But how the eyes of the Eriskayans must have lit up when they heard about what was stashed away in Hold 5. 260,000 bottles of Scotch whiskey. Now, there are two laws of maritime salvage in the United Kingdom. The official one, which you can read about on a handy 4,000 word guide on the gov.uk website that describes how to fill in an MSF 6200 report of wreck and salvage form to be sent to the receiver of wreck in Southampton within 28 days of recovery of items. And the unofficial one. Written in customs that predate customs houses, a rule of thumb as old as the stone huts on the Hebrides, which goes something like this. If a ship is sunk nearby, and the authorities aren't around, you can nick stuff off it. Put yourself in the worn leather boots of the islanders. All whiskey production in Britain had been halted the year before, as barley was diverted from distilleries to feeding the population. That was fair enough, but taking the dwindling remaining stocks 
Scotland's finest Hague pinch, amber conclave, white horse, McCallum's perfection and old curio, and selling them to the Yanks? That was not fair enough. Each one of those bottles could fetch you 16 shillings or more on the open market, about a day's wages, the ultimate duty-free shopping experience. Or it could get you absolutely lashed. Knowing all this, are you going to follow the first law of maritime salvage or the second? Thought so. They came from all over, from North Uist and South Uist, from Lewis and Barra, in skiffs and dinghies and rowboats under cover of night or the veil of a winter squall. They got out and waded, swam and dived into the half-submerged caverns of Hold Five to pull out the bottles, drifting like shoals of glass fishes through the icy bilge water. Many thought of themselves as rescuers rather than thieves, saving the cargo before the sea took it forever. Others knew they were in the murky waters of questionable legality. They wore their wives' dresses on looting trips so that the spilled engine oil wouldn't stain their clothes and give away just where they'd been. By the time the first official salvage mission got there, three days after the ship was wrecked, the evidence of looting was obvious. By the time of the second one in April, it was the open secret of the Hebrides. The official salvagers got a little over half the booze out. And to stop the unofficial salvagers getting what was left of the rest... In a spectacular act of pettiness, they blew the hull up with dynamite. That still left an estimated 24,000 bottles somewhere on land. The local customs officer, Charles McColl, was tasked with getting them back. He sent the police on raids into the houses of the locals, but they were ready. The bottles were hidden, stashed under floorboards, buried in oat fields, or just drunk up and disposed of before they arrived. Rumours abounded that the police were probably harbouring a case or two of the booze themselves, so this wasn't exactly the most rigorous operation ever. But someone had to be brought in to keep the higher-ups happy. 32 were arrested. 19 got prison sentences, though none more than a couple of months. The night the sentences were handed down, someone made a hole in the roof of the garage where McColl's car was parked, poured in paraffin and set it on fire. McCall was livid at the leniency of the sentences, and probably not too thrilled about his car either. He wrote angry letters to his bosses to get tougher punishments. But the world moved on, and the tides came in and out, and the wind and waves took the decks and the cabin. So now the ship lies hidden under the waterline. There's one more part to the story of the cargo of the SS politician. By June that year, banks across the country started receiving hundreds of water-damaged banknotes. These must have come from the wrecked ship, but no one knew why. The government never mentioned this money before or after the wreck. Only in 2016 were the files that explained it declassified. The money was for another island on the other side of the ocean. In 1940, a report reached the government that Jamaica was in crisis, racked by the poverty and violence that inevitably stem from colonialism. The report was so bad they kept it a secret, for fear that it would make Britain's allies desert their side in the war. Rather than enact the meaningful changes this report recommended, they sent a £35,000 cash bailout to the local administration, which they also kept secret. Was this the real reason the ship got dynamited? To hide a clandestine transfer of imperial hush money? 
we may never know for sure. What we do know is that the wreck of the politician is still out there, in the frigid bosom of the North Atlantic. And despite the dynamite, there are still bottles on it, and one of them recently sold at auction for £2,200. So if you feel like following the second law of maritime salvage, bring a solid diving suit, good torch, and your wife's least favourite dress. Fogland Lighthouse is written, produced and scored by me, Jack Dean. I get research assistance from Lucy Jane Santos and project management from Plum Grosvenor Stevenson. This season is supported by Arts Council England. The show is presented by Jack Dean and Company. You can find out more about us and our other projects at jackdean.co.uk. In particular, I'd like to plug Vinland, a show about the last Viking expedition to North America, which is on tour in the south of England until the end of February 2022. We're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, or you can email me on jack at jackdean.co.uk. If you get a moment, please leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or share the podcast with someone you think might like it. Those both help an awful lot. I'll catch you guys next week.